everyone. Thank you very much for coming. And thank you to all the Gleasons that have come out in force, all Phil's long lost cousins. I know some of you have already introduced yourselves. Just a little bit of background, which, which Phil might cover also. Um, Phil contacted us back at the end of last October, telling us about his great-grandfather who had emigrated from Killaloo back in 1888, I think was the date you had, yeah, around then. And that he, he, his father was uh, John Gleason and his mother, uh, Bridget Hayes, we thought at the time, but it came out to be Margaret at the end. Yeah. So anyway, we did a bit of searching. Um, Phil came up then and he said, this is a photo of the home, the glass in the front door of the home place, and it was Killari. So that was we were able to pinpoint the townland and find the family. And then slowly, as, as we communicated and asked more questions locally, we filtered it down and discovered, I found out that Mary McHugh, who works in Collins, is, where are you, Mary? <laughs> Mary, right beside my house, was a relative of Phil's. So through his, his great-grandfather's brother. So then Phil was saying to me, Deborah, you know, would love to send you a present or something. And I said, no, you know, visiting would be a present, more than a present enough. So he said he'd have a trip was on the cards, and here he is. So, Phil. I love what you made me do. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that was the other thing. Well, while you're over here, why don't you do a talk? <laughs> Fill a gap in our schedule. So he did, very graciously. And so he's here with Mary Ellen, his partner, and his two sons, one of uh, Tom, which is Tom? You're Tom, and Lachlan. Lachlan? Yes. That's how I say it. And so imagine we have Tom Gleason's going from this Tom to Prairie Boy, to Prairie's Boy, Australia's son, to another Tom Gleason here. Deirdre has a brother, Tom, haven't you? Yeah. And you have a son, Tom, and here's another Tom. So we've so many Tom Gleasons. So it's lovely. It's really lovely. So thank you all, and I'll let Phil start. Oh, thank you. Hello. Okay, so to help put me at ease, can I have a show of hands of people who think that they might be related to me? <laughs> can I? The remaining people, then, can everyone else who didn't put up their hand now put up their hand? Because I think they belong to a group of people who are not sure, but they would like to be related. <laughs> Thank you, thank you, that's very comforting. Okay, so um, one of my anxieties before coming here was that um, I wondered whether the Irish had completely lost patience with mostly, I hope there's no Americans in the audience, <laughs> mostly perhaps with Americans coming over and reading their chest about how Irish they are. So I don't want to do that. I stand here before you proudly Australian. However, I will simply show you this which is uh, my, I belong to a small country Catholic parish in West Gippsland and uh, for the first time since my father passed I went to the cemetery and a small walk down the Catholic corner of the cemetery will reveal clearly to you the names of the families that I went to mass with every weekend. O'Leary, Dylan, McMillan, Gleeson, O'Donoghue, Cunningham and Conlon, so that should explain to you a little bit about the cultural atmosphere into which I was born and raised. Um, in 1770, 
uh, aboard James Cook's Endeavour. Um, uh, the botanist, um, oh, I forgot his name, Joseph Banks, um, wrote that in his journal that Australia, or what was then called New South Wales, was virtually uninhabited. Nothing could be further from the truth. It was a patchwork of indigenous nations, all with separate languages and separate cultures. And it was one where people travelled and exchanged um, culturally and in trade. And um, recently I attended the University of Western Australia and um, was um, attended to observe a, an Aboriginal art exhibition. And the artists had come from Tenth Creek up here and they were visiting Perth some 4,000 kilometres, so similar to travelling from Moscow to London. And they explained to us that there was three crucial things that when one member of an Aboriginal community moved to someone else's country, they had to do three things. They had to pay their respect to the elders, to the country in which they visited. They then had to sing from a song line, and the song line explained their family background and the country from where they come from. And the third most important thing they had to do was bring gifts. So I propose to follow that formula. I want to therefore say that whilst here, I want to acknowledge uh, the elders' past and all their moments of despair and moments of joy that have brought Ireland to where it is today. And I want to also acknowledge and pay my respects to the elders, some of whom I'm related to, who are here tonight. I've got one small confession to make. I had secretly been hoping with yeah. my surname, <laughs> I, I think we're, no, do they, okay, are they at least from this area, no, okay, my only other confession is that I've spent, I'm 52 years of age, I've spent about 50 years of that period paying, paying absolutely no heed to family history whatsoever, no interest in it, for the first 30 years of my life, I ignored it. I thought, I don't need it. It's retrograde. Why? Who needs tradition? I'll forge my way through the world without paying any heed to it. Um, we haven't found them. But what I have found is mostly this. Can everyone see what they are? <laughs> I don't need to describe that to you, but it's good. This is a photograph from the early 1930s from uh, the, the farm on which I grew up. And it's one of the artefacts I have from family history. Clearly, uh, with potatoes, size doesn't matter. Okay, let's start. So what's my song line? <coughs> a show of hands, who's been here? A few people. Okay, it's a really simple place to understand. From about here, to here, there are crocodiles. <laughs> From here to here, and here to here, there are sharks. They're ill-mannered, but they're not ill-tempered. From here to here, there are sharks, which are devoid of all emotion, and are mostly ill-tempered. In here, there are snakes and spiders. I currently live here. Down here, people surf and make lovely red wine. And all of this, we sell to China. 
Okay. I just want to say one thing. Yeah. I know Mick's here. Please excuse me, I'm about to insult the English. The, in the English will have you believe that Captain Cook discovered Australia, and it's become almost folkloric in schools to think that the English discovered Australia. But for the last 20 years, I've lived in Western Australia in Perth. I'm not from there originally. But it's worth noting this. This is a 1663 French map. Clearly, they knew Australia was there. They knew it very well. Um, New Holland, they called it. And they were catching trade winds from Africa and charging over there. It's actually based on a 1644 Dutch map some 120, 30 years before James Cook sailed up the East Coast. <coughs> That's a replica of the Batavia, which is a famous Dutch merchant vessel that crashes on these islands here. Why on earth, and what has this got to do with the Gleeson family history? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing, but it does give me a chance to show you where I had holidays last year. <laughs> and this is a coral reef in the Indian Ocean called the Abromis. And that's the lovely Mary Ellen catching a bald chingroper. Okay, a bit more serious now. I grew up just east of a place called Melbourne in the state of Victoria, which was once the colony of Victoria. It was once entirely a colony of New South Wales. There's Melbourne, Port Phillip Bay, mountains down here, high rainfall grass area to the south. Western Port Bay, full of silt, rivers leaving the mountains, and emptying into Western Bay. A map from 1859. There's Western Port Bay. Uh, the first European funded by a chap called Gibbs to explore this area was a Polish count by the name of Pavel Streliski. It's spelled phonetically here. That's not the way he spells his name, but. Um, Silly Australians did their best. And that became known. I, when I grew up, this was known as the Streslecki Ranges. You see here an area of enormous size just called the Great Swamp. And that's where Thomas Francis ends up. Fun fact about Pavel Streliski this is a plaque from Dublin. He ends up raising money during the famine and uh, is recognised in this plant. I didn't know that. Has anyone heard of Pavel Streliski? Oh, I keep coming across um, alliances between the Irish and the Polish. Is this a thing? It's sort of they're trying to out-Catholic each other, I think, but there's a lot of... That's, that's, that was by Curie's shop in Dublin, that's a plant, Yes. Yes. Yes, he was a strange fellow. He wandered the world, explored and raised money for humanitarian causes. I should say, if anyone wants to jump up and shout out or ask a question, please do so. Okay. Who am I and why am I here? Um, let's do this quickly. Hold on to your hats. I was born... Oh, oh thank you. That's the right reaction. 5th of November, 1970. I had a brother named Mark. Everyone see? 
I'm the cute one on the left. I had two sisters, Michelle and Christine. This is here for no other reason than it's the cutest photo of me I've got. Eventually, I became old enough to attend my local Catholic school. School year starts in February in Australia, which is summer, it's high summer. So can anyone detect the nice brown, crispy environment behind us? That is not the Emerald Isle. Eventually I became old enough to be educated by Jesuits and went to a boarding school in Melbourne. I had a family, they grew up, and now I'm here. <laughs> okay, that's a long introduction. My dad grew up on a place called Calari Estate in a large, uh, ornate Queen Anne villa. His first wife was named Mary Duffy, Irish Catholic thing. Tragically, Mary passed away when her two daughters, my sisters, were very young. So subsequently, Tom married my mother, Helen. That's enough of their wedding. Okay. Tom had a brother, Peter. Peter loved flash cars. Tom loved fishing. If you look closely in the photo of my dad, you'll see evidence of the risk that ultimately caused him uh, to become unwell. Can anyone spot it? It's not the shark. He's holding a cigarette. They both grew up and became farmers. And they grew up here. This was unlike any house in the area or the region. <clears throat> Nothing was like it. I never knew why. I didn't grow up there. Peter and his boys grew up there, my cousins. But we always knew it as Kalari and we always knew it as the homestead. And it was massive and ornate. When my dad remarried, he went down the road, same farm, same property, but built this wonderful brick clinker, which is where I grew up. This is my cousin Mick, still in Kalari. It looks like a museum. It's gorgeous. But I never understood why it was there or how it came to be. So when did all this start? Remember this? <laughs> Sorry to remind you. But there, in about 2020, we all had a little bit of time on our hands. Around this time, or a year or so before, this was issued. This is called the Uluru Statement from the Heart. There was a meeting of Indigenous and Aboriginal leaders in Australia. And they concluded with this statement, which called on Australians, that there was a, they issued an invitation to amend our constitution to recognise the Indigenous population of Australia as having owned land and pre-existent European colonisation. Don't worry, um, we're not talking about Australian constitutional law tonight, but I just wanted to let you know why, during COVID, I started thinking more and more about land and colonisation and wondered what my role was in it all. What did I do? Well, I started where everyone starts, births, deaths, marriages, and uh, this is Thomas Francis Gleeson, my great-grandfather, 
marrying Annie Dawson uh, in 1889 in the colony of Victoria. She's from County Cavan, he's from Tipperary, and he, he says he's a farmer. I thought that's interesting. I checked passenger lists. I couldn't find a passenger list for Thomas Francis, but I found a passenger list for Annie Dawson, and she's arriving in about 1888. I had some family artefacts, but not many. I'm not certain, but I was told that was my father, which places that in the early 1930s. There's a lot of men there, and they're picking a lot of potatoes. I tried to read as widely as I could, and of course, I tried to locate primary source material like newspaper articles. What I most enjoyed was reading about the swirl of history happening around the same time as my grandfather and my great-grandfather. But like a detective, it, most of the time it just felt like this. I just couldn't, there was pieces of clues and pieces of information that was really hard to put a narrative to it. I didn't have a diary. I didn't have letters. But I did have this. And it, it remained like a bit of a totem. It stayed with me the whole time. Because my mother had given this to me about three years prior. And she simply said, you may as well have this. And it's a photo of Thomas Francis. And it simply says, The Gleeson family, a memento of a great friend of the McCaffrey family, Mr. Tom Gleeson. And on the rear, it says Mr. T. Gleeson, aged 81, 1937. That's the year of his death. Who are the McCaffreys? I have no idea. But at least I have a photo. All I knew was this. There'd been a Tom, a Peter, and then a Tom and a Peter. Lacks imagination, but at least I had a basis of a family tree. From family stories, I thought there'd been stories about another branch of Gleeson's because there'd been a dispute over the farm at one stage, all very mysterious, and I had no names, and I didn't know what that was about. So these, were, these are the main questions that dogged me. Why on earth did he come? Who were the other Gleeson's? Why on earth did he have such this, a large and ornate house? It didn't make sense. Was he a wealthy man? I had to ask myself about the Irish coming to Australia. After agriculture is reorganised in the 1850s, 1840s, 1850s in Ireland, there's an uptick. These are the numbers of people leaving Ireland for other places. The black are the numbers of Irish leaving for Australia. It's always a tiny trickle compared to people going to the US or remaining in the UK. There's an uptick during the 19, uh, 1860s because for a short time during the Civil War in the US, Australia looked like a better alternative, even if it was 12,000 miles away. Um, so this is post-famine. This is Civil War, 
little bit of an uptick. But by comparison to the Irish living in other places, it's a really small proportion. However, the key story is that as a proportion of the very small population in Australia, the Irish made up a significant sum. So the raw numbers are small, but the proportion is large. So by the 1870s, they are a quarter of the population in Melbourne and the colony of Victoria. They are second only to the English. So they make up, in raw terms, compared to the US and elsewhere, a small number, but a big cultural impact. Okay, so we are originally just the Port Phillip district and we are administered as part of the colony of New South Wales. There are, from about 1803, there are people sealing around here. In the 1820s, there are people grazing sheep as squatters. They don't own any land, they run it on Crown land. But Melbourne is not established until 1835. By 1851, the colony separates and they get home rule. Ironic for the Irish living in Melbourne and Victoria. John Redmond, the home rule politician, travels to Melbourne and for 10 months goes up the east coast of Melbourne, Sydney, raising money for home rule. And the Irish living there already have it. In about 1851 or 1852, in the western part of Victoria, they find gold. The population in a 10-year period goes from about 70,000 people to about 700,000 people. It makes it the second wealthiest city by 1880 in the entire British Empire. If you've visited Melbourne, you'll recognise it. It's entirely Victorian architecture. All the grand architecture is Victorian. They have a World Trade Exhibition in 1880 and another one in 1888. What follows a mining boom? Crash. This is South Melbourne, the first suburb where Thomas Francis arrives in the 1890s. The wool price, the main export for Australia at the time, crashes. All the wealth that had speculated on land um, causes a banking collapse and the economy shrinks by about 20%. I know he's living near South Melbourne because I have this book that he brought with him. Middle Park, which is right next to South Melbourne. Okay. I wake up one morning and I think, well, I know he came from Killaloo. I wonder if there's a local history society in Killaloo. I find Deborah, I email her, and within a week or so, she emails me this. It's my grandfather visiting here in 1933. Can everyone read that or would they like me to read it? Mr. Pete Gleeson, born in Melbourne of Irish parents, who originally hailed from Killary, Killaloo, North Tipperary, is on a visit presently to friends 
in the old homestead. Mr. Gleeson is a personal friend of the Most Reverend Dr. Mannix and has travelled extensively. He says Ireland has no rival for scenic beauty. What a suck. With the possible exception of Switzerland. Speaking of Australia, he says that wool means to her what oil is to America, possibly more. I can't describe to you how affecting this was because this is a man I've never seen a photograph of. I've certainly never heard his words. I had the one photograph of my great-grandfather but no photograph of my grandfather. He had died of multiple sclerosis within 10 years of his own father dying in 37. So Thomas Francis dies in 37 and Peter dies in 48. And my father and his younger brother take over the farms as very young men about your age. So this, this starts me on a bit of a detective hunt. I think, well, if someone on the other side of the world can send me a newspaper article that tells me more about my grandfather than I know, then I've got to work a little bit harder. And it gives me an idea to look specifically for newspaper articles. I start wondering why he came, so I start looking for advertisements used around the time to encourage people to leave. This is from a sign at Australia House in the Strand around the turn of the century. And this is one of the posters that encouraged people to leave. It, becomes, it has become a bit of a folkloric tale to think that the Irish mostly were sent to a penal colony as convicts, and there were some, but by far the majority of Irish went as assisted and unassisted migrants, mostly from Clare, mostly from Tipperary. This is from Thomas Francis's death certificate. He said this, his children at the time he died were my grandfather Peter, someone called John Deceased. I've never heard of this person. These are the extracts from his top line is his marriage. Certificate, and these are the birth certificates of John and Peter, my grandfather. So here, when he's married in 1889, he says he's a farmer. When his first child is born in 1890, he says he's a contractor, and when his second son. I think, therefore, when he arrives without work, he describes himself as a farmer. So my money is on him arriving shortly before he's married. 1889. I don't know how they meet. So I think he's, I think he's arriving in 1888 or 1889 because if he had work and had established himself, I don't think he'd be calling himself a farmer. And he's living in South Melbourne. Okay. So this, don't worry about that, it's a clue for me to read something to you. Because I'm, I'm assessed by the house, I look up the Shire Register. And I notice it's got a heritage listing on it. And in the heritage listing, it's described with interviews from my uncle. A rate book search confirmed that from 1910, this property was associated with the Gleesons, a Tainong farming family. Gleeson's grandfather, this is the words of my uncle Peter, 
planted about 300 acres of potatoes, which was a sizable capital investment for the time. He made only 10 shillings per tonne on some of the early plantings and stood to lose a considerable amount from the project. He then went to Brisbane to recover from an asthma attack. On his return, prices stood at 35 pounds per tonne and he dug the remainder, making his fortune and building his house and shed. Gleason Senior was born in a little house named Kalari in the village of Killaloo, County Clare. Not quite right. He and his wife Anne came to Victoria in the late 1880s and settled in Melbourne, forming the Melbourne Sand Company. News to me. He made money carting sand in drays from the Frankston foreshore to Port Melbourne. Okay. So that sounded to me like he'd been a very lucky man, growing potatoes and making his fortune. Taking a leaf from Deborah's book, I went looking for newspaper articles. Here he is being arrested for assault in 1899. <laughs> his neighbour is woken up early by the sound of his drays, so he creeps out and follows him. A fight ensues. Both of them are arrested, but the man assaulted by my great-grandfather ends up in hospital. Gleason's staff, they say, some of his workers attend as the fight is happening and um, basically say that, you know, the other chap started it. They both get off. It's amusing and she, clearly his diplomacy skills are underdeveloped, but it tells me that he's still living in Melbourne running his sand business at 1899. He, he hasn't yet any farming This is an article where he's leading a delegation of sand carters to the Port Melbourne Council. And he's making some humorous retort, which you wouldn't know it's humorous, but you do because the article inserts laughter. Okay. But what about his farm? How did that come about? Well, as it turns out, that great area east of Melbourne called the Great Swamp, it had been, the colonial government from about eight, the late 1880s had been earmarking that for conversion and drainage into an agricultural area. So Melbourne is completely depressed. A third of the uh, of workforce is unemployed. And so they come up with an idea to um, drain this whole area using labour force in exchange for land. So you have two weeks, it's called the Village Settlement Scheme, and you would have two weeks um, helping drain and build this enormous um, drainage channel. And then you had two weeks, you got a 20 acre block, you had to be unemployed, you had to be married. And by um, the late 1890s, they dug this thing all the way through from the bottom of those mountains to Western Port Bay. Um, they, uh, the, initial, the initial phases of the scheme weren't successful because they were using chaps from the city who weren't very experienced in farming, weren't used to the hard work and the area was still flooding. So there were two major floods in the 1890s. 
By 1914, just prior to the outbreak of the war and before trade with Europe ceased, they imported this baby from Germany called the Lubecker dredge. So I was able to find this 1907 map of the allotments. So there's the main drain running from the bottom of the mountains all the way through to Western Port. These are the village scheme lots and there are some larger lots here. The Gleason lots are all up here. My cousins are still here and I grew up my farm here. So you'll see Thomas Gleason's lots right on the edge and Anne Gleason, his wife. I grew up here on this farm, but this, in the initial allotments, are not allotted to him, so he must have purchased them subsequently. There is some reference, Deborah, isn't there, to him coming to Australia for, presumably for economic prosperity, but also for health and climate, because he had asthma. Someone indicated that he had asthma. Mary, Mary, Mary Hill came up with these documents. Notes by Chad. Yeah, mm -hmm. Mary Scholars. But anyway, saying that he had, yeah, he'd done, he'd done uh, this, is, this is a reference to his first son, John. He spent some time in a, um, in a clinic for a respiratory illness. And there's a trip taken in 1915, I think, off to Queensland and the Heritage Register said that they'd been to Brisbane. I kept finding references to him being incredibly engaged in agriculture and farming. Here he is explaining his theory on Irish blight to potatoes, to other farmers. Here he is importing bumblebees help with pollination. And to the left is an article about him being one of the most successful pioneer farmers of the area. And once again, discussion about some amazing potato crop. Here he is growing the largest number of cabbages in the state of Victoria. And this is a design of his to fix a foot rot bath. He's exporting cattle to India. And by this stage, the farm seems to be moving away from tillage to a dairy herd of Jersey cattle makes a bit of sense because here's my dad as a young man with a jersey with a jersey head <laughs> we heard earlier that his diplomacy skills were underdeveloped at some stage he ended up in the Supreme Court of Victoria because he decided that a share farmer needed to be removed from some property and he took a delegation down there and assaulted him and removed him forcefully. So he was sued and he was, he was ordered to pay damages to a Mr. O'Gorman. He then appealed it. I haven't read the judgment, uh, but um, 
got some other things to do. Damages for assault and trespass. It's not exactly where I expected to find references to him, but strangely, I'm secretly a little bit proud as well. Okay. I discovered, if you forgive me for reading, in the 1930s, a delegation of farmers from Tasmania visited the farm. Um, by that stage, sorry, the 1940s, by that stage it was being run by my grandfather, Peter. And they were comparing the area to areas in Tasmania. And they described that the farm comprises 1,100 acres in a 28-inch rainfall belt. Pasture growth is phenomenal. 600 Jersey cattle are run on the farm. Usually about 240 cows are milked. It goes on to say, it was interesting to learn that on this property, what was claimed to be a record acreage of potatoes for any one farm in the southern hemisphere was grown. 380 acres being planted one year. These were carmens and produced an average of 11 tonnes per acre. Prices were good and Mr Gleeson's father netted 15,000 pounds from the crop. Potato growing has now been entirely abandoned in the farm as it was considered to be more profitable to carry on dairy. Here's the bumper crop of potatoes referenced again. Now, I think what's important about that is not just that it's referenced, but the next generation are still telling the same story. So it's an important thing, obviously, if we put our detective hats on. Okay. But really, I think my favourite thing that I found, because it really is what brings me here, was a, was a 1909 interview with Thomas himself in a national agricultural newspaper called the Weekly Times. And please, I would seek your indulgence. I just want to read one particularly uh, important part. It is, no, it is worthy of incidental mention that Mr Gleeson is typical of a class of producers to be met with in all parts of the state. The work being done has a national value, in addition to being personally profitable. A few decades ago, the arable land in Victoria was considered to be limited in extent. When Mr Gleeson acquired this part of the Kuirup Swamp land, which he now owns, it was probably the most unlikely looking spot for agricultural purposes in the whole of Victoria. It was rough, scrub, uh, scrubby tea tree, 30 foot high in places. It grew so closely together that it any entrance on foot was scarcely possible. The soil held moisture like a sponge. Mr Gleeson saw that the cause of the trouble was the drains did not go far back enough to incept the hill water. He made application to the government to construct an outer channel that would conduct the surface overflow into the main canals before it had time to spread over the morass. The work was an immediate success and a large portion of the land, in addition to that, taken up by Mr Gleeson was reclaimed. Arterial drains through sections of the property successfully drained all parts of the farm. It was thus made manifest to those who had derided Mr Gleeson's efforts that much is possible to the cultivator who understands his work. As a student at the Derry Castle Model Farm School at Loch Derg in the county of Tipperary, Mr Gleeson received a theoretical 
as well as a practical knowledge of land drainage. He gained a scholarship at that institution at the early age of 13 years for his knowledge of agricultural matters. He's now making good use of the information. He felt that was incredibly important. And I think that's pretty amazing for me to be here right now and to have visited the Model Farm School uh, yesterday. He ended up with a thousand acres. Yeah. So, um, the more I read, the more I started thinking about um, what was what was a transformation in start, be, be starting Irish and becoming Australian. What does that look like? What does it feel like? Um, and I can't really do that without thinking about this chap. Which is Daniel Mannix, who is was appointed the coadjutor bishop of Melbourne in 1913, and uh, becomes the bishop, the archbishop of Melbourne, um, in late to, in late 1915. Now, there's an in Melbourne at the time to be Catholic was to be Irish, and they were a significant portion of the community. Even though um, the great majority of them were urban working poor and working class in Melbourne, which doesn't feel right when I look at the house uh, that Thomas Francis built and the early success he had as an agriculturalist, and he would have been an employer of men of, um, and a significant business owner. So he doesn't fit to this neat paradigm of urban working class Irish Catholic. However, the arrival of this man and the confluence of certain events meant that for a great many decades in Melbourne, the Irish were a unified collective. And the events, I, certainly I'm embarrassed to mention them, but I shouldn't need to explain them to you, were First World War, the Gallipoli campaign and vast numbers of volunteers from Australia throughout 1915. The recording of the deaths and the outcome of the Gallipoli campaign meant the enlistments went down very quickly towards the end of 1915. And so the Prime Minister at the time, a Welsh member by the name of William Morris Hughes, said we needed conscription. Australians regarded themselves, quite apart from what we're about to talk about, regarded themselves as British. So when Britain was in a war, they felt it was an existential crisis for themselves as well. So they enlisted in vast numbers. But enlistments took a dive. The Prime Minister said we need conscription. As it turns out, the only two places in the British Empire that didn't have conscription during the First World War was Ireland and Australia. Why didn't we have conscription? Because William Morris Hughes, God bless him, said I'm not going to implement it unless the people vote on it. So he um, commenced a referendum. He planned the referendum for June 1916, as we know, in Easter 1916, uh, the events of the uprising and the subsequent um, summary deaths of the members of the uprising. Archbishop Mannix becomes quite radicalised by the events of 1916 and he galvanises the Catholic community around objecting to the conscription referendums. The Prime Minister tries twice. He has two referendums and he loses both of them. Whether, it, whether they're right or they're wrong, 
the vast majority of people in Melbourne particularly see the loss of the referenda on conscription as an Irish Catholic issue. And they're called traitors, they're called anti-empire, they're called all the usual Irish Catholic tropes. So it causes quite a divide. It's quite divisive. All the usual sectarian problems follow. No doubt you had a similar campaigns here. This is a picture of um, St. Patrick's Day celebration <laughs> in 1920. The war's finished. And over 100,000 people are lining the streets of Melbourne. This is Daniel Mannix. Archbishop Mannix loved the theatre of events like this. And in a time before digital phones, civic participation was all about turning up. What he organised as a bit of an up yours to everyone about his level of patriotism and the level of um, civic participation of Irish Catholics was he put seven Irish Catholic VC winners on white horses at the front and he followed them. That same year, he says, I'm going to lead a, um, a pilgrimage to Rome and he invites local Catholics to come with him. Rather than travel to Rome through the Suez Canal and up the Quickway, he goes around the long way. He goes to the USA first and he heads straight to New York. And who do you think he teams up with in New York in, 19, in 1920? De Valera. Eamon de Valera. He becomes a confidant and a friend of de Valera throughout the uh, entire War of Independence and the, and the Civil War, which ensures that his career goes nowhere other than Melbourne. He remains the Archbishop of Melbourne for 50 years. He tries to come to Ireland on this trip, but he's denied entry by the British. So he floats on a ship outside Cork for a while and they don't let him in. They see him as quite a threat. So I, I wondered to myself, well, where does my great-grandfather, where does my family fit in all this? How do they regard this? I'm immersing myself in Irish history thinking, well, the events and politics of Australia are being looked at and participated in through the prism of Irish politics. And it's the Irish voting against conscription in, in 1916 that are like the grit of sand in the oyster that try one of the first occasions for the Australian population to think our interests may not be the same as Britain's interests. The only clue I've got of where he stood on all this is that the Irish Relief Fund set up by Daniel Mannix to assist um, Irish nationalists imprisoned. It's called the Irish Relief Fund. It's funneling money, presumably, through Mannix to De Valera. And Thomas is held in, hold, in 1924 is holding a fundraiser. He's also consistently hosting St. Patrick's Day events. Okay. So, I don't have letters, I don't have his own words, 
but David Fitzpatrick's book that I have here is a historical study of correspondence from Irish expats going back and forth from Ireland and Australia. And he says um, one way that he observed in the letters uh, a sense of consciousness changing among the Irish expats is that all the references of the word home in the letters leaving Ireland are to an area or a community or a region. And all the references using the word home in letters from Australia are about a physical dwelling. Home means a big, kick-ass place, but home for the Irish was still community and uh, region. I think there's evidence of Tom going through that, own, that same transformation. What does he do when he first finds success? He builds an enormous house. What does he call it? He calls it Kalari. After what I really enjoyed learning was essentially his mother's home. I've spoken about Tom, but I do just want to leave you. Eventually, I did find a photograph of my own grandfather, his son Peter. This is him on the far left. He travels to America in the 1920s and starts a bitumen importing business which is incredibly successful until the Second World War breaks out and uh, trade across the Pacific takes a dive. He also contracts multiple sclerosis. He was not going to, clearly not going to be a farmer. But he comes back to the farm. His older brother, John, had died, I've only recently discovered, in the early 1920s. He also was in America at the time, but was investigating abattoirs and the, the transportation of meat to supplement the, far the farming endeavours. They did not enlist for the First World War. Before I finish, I just want to show you my favourite picture of my father, Tom Gleeson, at some stage in the 1950s. I like this because he actually looks thoroughly Irish, I think, in this picture. Smoking his pipe and drinking corn. I've got one more thing to show you, but I do want to conclude by saying I hope um, my uncle's description of my great-grandfather getting incredibly lucky by planting potatoes and having a bumper crop and the price going up. I hope, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, after having seen the evidence, you would conclude, in my submission, that he wasn't just lucky, he was a man of great talent. He was a man of great endeavour. He was incredibly engaged. He must have, at some stage, before he jumped on a ship in court in 1888, he must have thought to himself, I can rely on my own wit, my own intelligence, my own skills and knowledge. I don't need anything else, which is a transformation in itself. You remember the writing? on the envelope from the McCaffrey family. Rosaline McCaffrey was a presentation nun. It's her handwriting. And to find out about the McCaffrey family, of which I knew nothing, I tracked her down through the archivist of the presentation sisters, and they said she was still alive. She was 96 years old. And they said they would find her for me. I got no reply for a long time, except three weeks before 
I arrived in Ireland, a young lady emailed me and said, Rosalind was my auntie, my great auntie. I'm sorry to say that she's passed away last week. However, she got my message and she wrote this down. There's the same handwriting. I'm just incredibly touched that in the last days of her life she felt it was important to respond to my request for information. The connection between the Gleasons and McCaffrey families came about some time prior to 1929. Your grandfather advised, my great-grandfather, will forgive her that error, advised and helped in the purchase of the farming property we moved into in July 1929, having no close family Irish. In Australia, especially my mother, the Gleasons became family. Sunday afternoons and evening visits, receiving a very pretty dress from your grandmother, kneeling beside her bed, reciting the rosary after she died. My mother had attended to her prior to her death. It goes on. That has been the most instructive thing for me, that the history, what I call the history from below, finding out that uh, you know, it puts a lot of meat on the bones and it's quite a personal narrative. And this exercise, I think, in finding out about this story, about a man I knew nothing about, um, has been transformative for me. And uh, it makes me feel that 1880 is very proximate. It's only a few generations ago. It is not that long ago. And um, I've never felt more like an immigrant in my own country. And it's been a, it's been a wonderful exercise. And I hope, I really, I really hope that speaking with a few of you, I can learn a lot more. The final thing I need to do is give some gifts. One gift is that I've organised some finger food, so do stay anyone who wants to have a bit of a yak. And I've opened a bar tab if you want to have a tea, a coffee, or a wee drink. The only other gift I want to give is this to you, Deborah. Uh, and I would like to read the inscription. This has been a comfort to me. It's called Oceans of Consolation. It's a history of letters written by Irish immigrants in Australia back home. A book lying idle on a shelf is wasted. Like money, I wish the like money, books must be kept in constant circulation. A book is not only a friend, it makes friends for you. When you have possessed a book with mind and spirit, you are enriched. But when you pass it on, you're enriched threefold. So says Henry Miller. Thank you very much. It didn't feel like it. And it's such an interesting story that this young man came from here and, and was so, so successful in Australia and had all these, you know, the relatives still left at home, his brothers and his sisters, and the people here are descended from those people.
so it's really wonderful, and it's lovely. We have a full circle now. Yeah. Your, your, your Thomas France is coming back. Yeah, <laughs> in spirit. So, I'm and not you, a farmer, I But you're not a farmer. You're, you're a solicitor. I am. Yeah. A lawyer or a solicitor? Paper. Same thing. Same thing in Australia. <laughs> Do you go to court and defend criminals? Depends like who's asking. <laughs> <laughs> He's a good one. So, we're. Um, so, thank you very much, and thank you for the finger food and the bar tab. And Phil's around tomorrow as well. But are you going to go to the cliffs? Or do you know? I'm not going to the show. To where? Rock of Kishon. Oh, the Rock of Kishon. Lovely. Yeah. So, we've, we actually, guys, we have some journals and some uh, albums here if anyone wants to buy them. But I'd say most of you already have, have them already. Uh, the journals are, what are we doing for the journals? Are ten. No, oh, the journals are 10, yeah. and the journals are 15 each, so if anyone wants to buy any. And we have our speaker for next month, who is uh, Luke McInerney. His poster is here, and he's going to speak on the early Irish, the early medieval Irish church, and that's going to be at St. Flannan's Cathedral, which is a very appropriate setting. Uh, Luke is an independent scholar. He's also a banker. He's, Aust he's Australian, would you believe? <laughs> so he'll be coming down here to Killaloo to give that talk um, he's he's really what did, what, I can't really, he's like the Brian Cox of medieval history you know Brian Cox the guy that makes science kind of interesting or so he's a bit like that he's young he's uh, and he really he really it, it brings it to life so that'll be on the Wednesday the 18th of May at the cathedral so we'll just finish questions. up huh do any questions for any oh sorry <laughs> any questions for Phil? I was about to thank Phil profusely, but I want to go to questions. No, it's more a comment than anything. Yeah. Uh, two granduncles of ours in, in 1890, Patrick and Matthew Gleeson, went to roughly the same area. And I was just wondering, I never knew what attracted them to that area. I'm not aware that they had any previous uh, relations out there. Um, I know when they arrived, they went to... Um, Mass in, in a church in Melbourne. Uh, I'm gonna, I, I forget the name of it now. Um, and and they, they eventually moved out and they lived in a town called Outram, O U T T R I M. And, and Patrick was the postmaster and had a general store, and Matthew was the local baker. And, Matt, and, and Patrick um, bought land and coal was discovered on it, and there was a link of the main railway line built out to his farm to take away the coal. Lots of brown coal down there. That's the other part of Gippsland, further along to the east. Yeah. But uh, what the question, what would have sent them down there? Yeah, what was the attraction? Was there a previous... Land, lots of land, yeah. under land. But they generally followed, followed chain migration was, was very common. They generally followed previous... Oh, certainly by... Um, so you, that, first lump after the famine, the 1850s, and then the second lump during the 1860s, and then there's a lot of what they call pull immigration. So a lot of letters back saying, hey, it's, it's good crack, get out here. Um, and that's what happens right through to the early 20th century as well. Mind you, the letters, and you'll find in this book, um, the letters coming from Australia are a, a lot of, there's a lot of bragging about, gee, it's great down here. But there's also a lot 
um, coming back from Ireland saying, you know, it's not so bad here anymore either. Yeah. <laughs> and so there's a lot of sort of, and neither of which is probably completely honest. True, yeah. um, so there's a lot of <clears throat> back and forth saying, well, things have changed and things have improved here, and well, we're having a great time down here. So, I think, which is understandable. Quite a number of Gleasons emigrated from the parish to the silver mines as well to, to Sydney more so. There's a, a man out there, Damien Gleason, in, in Sydney. He's done a lot of research in the Gleasons and his brother is Monsignor Gerard Gleason of the Diocese of Sydney. Ah, yes. Well, there are different pockets. If I can find another... Um, oh. Sorry. I'll turn your back on. Will I? John that married into Killary Hayes was from Bridgetown. Yep. So he was Claire Gleason. Now whether he's a Kilcolman or I'm sure they're all of the same. No, no. Because we invited a man, what's his name, Paddy the Gleason man, Morris Gleason, is it? Who's in England? Oh, Dr. Morris. Yeah, we invited him here. The DNA expert. Yes. Our good friend of mine. He's compiling a huge big Gleason DNA database. There are a lot of Gleasons around here. Had he been able to come, he'd be swapping you all. He would. He's some character. That Outram or Outram is down here. Yes. But there are a lot of Gleasons around here. None of none of which I understand are directly related. The present descendants are around in Burlock. Which I think is down in the back. In below. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. So we have Gleasons from all strands of the uh, of Thomas's siblings. We've the Patrick's descendants, Honora's descendants. Uh, John had no children. John Jack, and Ellen. Ellen. Honora. Uh, Honora. So uh, Sheila there is a descendant of Honora. Patrick then, Patrick and Ellen. Ellen married Wickstead and she was out in Killascully. Is there any, any relatives of hers here? No? Any children of hers? Huh? All gone. Yeah? Yeah. That's, that's where Morris Leeson's people came from around Killascully. Oh, right, yeah. But she was, a, she was, this was a female, so she married a Wickstead out there. Morris to tell you now, yeah. I think a Martin Gleason oh, right. left that country. He was a school teacher, he went to Wicklow. Okay, yeah. yeah. It's very interesting. And you know the Garvey thing? The Garvey marrying in to um, the Killary homestead, he was from the Glen. And we had a guy here from Wisconsin, from a, a town called Freedom, that's full of uh, Garveys. The Garvey Street, Garvey Lane, Garvey this, Garvey that. The Garveys practically founded. Garvey's from the Glen practically founded this town. And but Pop Max said to me, one of those Garveys went over to Balana and the rest exchanged exchange land in, in the land, in the land transfer. Yeah. That, that was the Garvey, that's Jack Garvey's father. Yes, exactly, Johanna Sullivan. Yeah. All right. Another Garvey from the Glen. Oh, another girl, one of the 
emailed him and told him we found the diary that had gone to Ballinat. Ted Kennedy was one former comedian. That was the man in Australia. Yeah, Ted Kennedy, the one that was